the end of another busy day. You just saw 20, 30 patients, maybe more. Instead of heading home for dinner with your spouse or playing with your kids, you now begin your night job, charting. Charting is critical for patient care, billing, and medical legal liability, but it steals our focus from our patients, eats away at our time with our families, and keeps us up at night. The burden of always having another chart to complete drains all of us. Freed listens, prepares your notes, and writes patient instructions for you. Charting is done before your patient walks out of the room. Wait, because it gets better. Freed learns your style over time. It's AI, just like a human scribe would, except it will never quit on you. Freed is loved by 3,000 plus clinicians from every specialty. It's HIPAA compliant, takes 30 seconds to learn, and costs only $99 a month. You can try Freed for free right now by going to freed.ai, F-R-E-E-D.ai. Listeners of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring can use the code PGD50 for $50 off the first month. On today's episode, we have one of the founders of Positive Medicine. We learn how to view adversity as an opportunity for growth, how to strengthen our connections with others through something called the active constructive response, and why everything that happens in Vegas ends up in your ear and colon. Stay tuned and find out. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Welcome back to the podcast. On today's episode, we have a repeat guest. Actually, she hasn't been a guest herself before. She's been a guest host on multiple occasions. You know her, you love her, Dr. Jordan Feingold. So let me give her official introduction. It's Dr. Feingold, MD, sorry, M-A-P-P, M-S-C-R. We'll talk about what that all that means. She's a physician, well-being researcher, positive psychology practitioner, and founder of the Emergent Field of Positive Medicine, working to bring the science of well-being to people everywhere. So she graduated from Penn, my alma mater, with a B.A., and a Master's of Applied Positive Psychology, that's the MAPP, and then went to Mount Sinai School of Medicine for her medical degree and also got a Master's of Science in Clinical Research. She's currently completing her residency training in psychiatry at Sinai and will be starting a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry next year. So a little more about her. She developed and teaches elective courses As a resident, she developed and teaches elective courses in positive medicine at Sinai and is the co-founder and trainee of the trainee well-being curriculum, Peers, Practice Enhancement, Engagement, Resilience, and Support. And she developed, and this is what she's been on the show talking about before, she developed an online well-being program called ThriveRx for physicians and even more co-author of, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, of Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt that she co-wrote with one of her undergrad professors, Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. So, Dr. Jordan Feingold, welcome back. Oh, that is sure a mouthful. Thank you, Bradley, for having me. <laughs> and it is so great to be here and as a guest and, and chat with you. We're going to be talking about the book today. So why did you decide to write this book? Sure. So this book is really a result of Scott first book. So my co-author, Scott Barry Kaufman, he's host of the psychology podcast and was my undergraduate positive psychology professor. He came out with his previous book called Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization, which is a masterpiece. And that dropped April 2020 as 
COVID was just really taking over all of our lives. And of course, because we didn't know this was coming, there was no mention of, you know, this life-changing stressor that was going to emerge on the scene. And in the very back of that book, in Appendix B, I actually co-authored with Scott on Transcend some practices that took the content and the theory and the science that he so masterfully wrote into some tangible practices to put these ideas into practical skills that people could actually use. So when the pandemic was underway, his publisher said, hey, Scott, like, let's develop this thing into a workbook. So people are really suffering right now and struggling. And we have all of this content already, like, let's build this out. And he said, well, we can definitely do that. But I I have to get my partner Jordan to join me, which was an amazing honor. And it was such a gift to be able to write this book with him. And I was so excited to do it personally, because I think COVID was the first time that I really struggled myself with anything resembling I don't think I, I could say I was depressed because it didn't last, but it was the lowest that I personally ever felt in my life. The uncertainty, the social isolation, I was the lowest that I've ever been. And I, as someone who does have a pretty high happiness set point and a pretty high tolerance for distress, having gone through medical training and all that jazz, I was thinking if I'm doing this poorly myself, other people must really be struggling. And how can I, in all of my helplessness, help others? And I thought that this would be a really amazing way to do that. How very Victor Frankl of you. <laughs> if you could, that is the biggest compliment one can give. Yes. Some logo therapy during COVID. You said something. We, we So this is nothing that we had talked about before the show or that I put in the questions, but you said, you know, the social isolation. Personally, I think you know, there was the economic uncertainty and the health uncertainty. But personally, I think that the social isolation that came from COVID was really one of the biggest problems that came from it for people. And that's what led to worsening of anxiety and worsening, you know, and all these, this, we're finding out more and more the importance of social connection and it's, you know, predictor of health and longevity. So I think that personally, that was the biggest stressor. What do you think? I completely agree. So we know well-being is contingent upon a few factors, but relationships, the single most important one, the single most important predictor of well-being and life satisfaction. And especially for someone like me, who my title when I first worked for Scott was chief extrovert, which was a title that (laughs) we totally made up because that is just so I'm very high in extroversion. I completely need other people to feel energized, to recover. I very much process my thoughts in a group. I was always like a group studier throughout high school and college and medical school. Like I am a very social creature. And for all of us, human beings are social creatures. We are wired for connection. And the fact that that became not only something that was hard to come by, but that it was something that we came to fear for our own health and safety just was basically taking one of our basic human needs, connection, and putting it at odds with our safety, which is another basic human need. And that type of conflict is incredibly distressing for people. So, but that was just a little aside. So I want to get back to the book. One of the things that you talk about in the book, and and that relates to really how you chose to cope also, was post-traumatic growth. There's the trauma of COVID, but there's plenty of other examples to use in our lives. And 
We had an episode a, a while ago about viewing anxiety differently, about how we can explain to our patients what is happening with their anxiety, and it helps them kind of realize that it's not necessarily in a negative, but rather our body doing something adaptive, and, and they can view it differently. So I think you're flipping the script on adversity as well. So why should we, for post-traumatic growth, why should we be viewing adversity differently? This is a really interesting conversation. So post-traumatic growth is the idea, and this came in the 1990s by Tedeschi and Calhoun, that people can experience actually a tremendous amount of personal growth in the wake of bad things that happen to them. And growth can happen in a few areas. So you can have a greater appreciation of life. You can have a deepening of relationships, a new sense of meaning and purpose, use of character strengths and virtues, enhanced sense of spirituality. So there's many things that actually can result from circumstances that we would never ask to happen for us. This doesn't mean that we cannot grow from positive things. And it doesn't mean we need terrible life experiences to happen to us in order to grow. But the idea is that often, most often, when terrible things happen, we can't go back in time and make those terrible things not happen. So then what are we left with? We can, you know, certainly languish and decide we don't want to continue in our lives, or we can keep going and, and move in the direction of time and see if we can maybe extract something from these terrible experiences. And this is a natural process. You know, this has been studied in folks who have gone through terrible things and then have later retrospectively said, wow, I did experience a newfound sense of personal relationships or a new appreciation of life. And interestingly enough, this is actually controversial in the scientific literature, whether the growth is actually real or if it's just something perceived that people say that they've grown, but it's not actually, it's very hard to study whether people actually experience post-traumatic growth because it's all self-report. But Scott and I kind of came to the conclusion that we don't really care if people perceive that they have grown, then that is beautiful and we should encourage that. So the whole idea is we can't change the past. So what can we do to move forward and potentially get to a place that that is positive that we would not have gotten in the absence of that stressor? And I think what's so interesting here, Bradley, a lot of the research now looking at teenagers uh, and kids throughout the pandemic and how they fared, and, and none of this is in the book because it was it's happening in real time found that kids from higher socioeconomic status did worse in terms of mental health outcomes during the pandemic than kids from lower SES backgrounds, possibly indicating that they had not experienced any kind of adversity before. And therefore, this particular adversity hit them really hard. So I think it's really important when we you talk about reframing adversity that, yes, adversity is not something to be avoided at all costs. It's inevitable that all human beings will experience adversity. And likely, the more we face early in life and can grow from, the better we are going to be at facing future adversity and recognizing that, okay, this is, these are opportunities for growth and learning and development. Hence the title, Choose Growth. And it's interesting you said it that way because your co-author from Thrive RX, Sanj Katyal, talked about how he discovered positive medicine because he hadn't really experienced adversity. He was humming along in life and everything was going, going great. And he said, wait a second, 
if I'm struggling with my well-being when everything is fine, what's going to happen when things are inevitably not fine? So how do I make myself a little more positive and nimble? And, and that's how he found the, the field of positive psychology and then ended up meeting you. Absolutely. It's like we all often do this hypothetical thought experiment in our teaching. Like if you could take a pill that would prevent you from feeling any negative emotions for a year, would you take it? I'm curious, Brad, would you take the positive emotion pill? No, I feel like I kind of thrive in my negative emotions. Well, that's right. We need the full spectrum of human emotion, negative included. When bad things happen, it only helps to create that contrast to appreciate the good in our lives. And so that was kind of like the backdrop on which I was really trying to understand my own experience. Like, wow, so much has been taken away from us in terms of human connection and just feeling safe, going to do basic life events, the celebration of weddings and birthdays and funerals, these integral parts of, of human life and how sweet that felt when that returned. And you really appreciate things when they aren't a given. What's There's a term for that, that you all use in positive psychology where you- Mental contrasting. Yes. I actually did that the other night because one of my kids just wouldn't go to sleep and I had stuff I needed to do and I had to get in bed with him and like, and I was like, listen, he's going to be a teenager in a couple of years and it's not going to be the same as, you know, this little boy I have right now. And so I'm going to enjoy it. I'm not going to stress about the things I need to do. And so I pictured him as a teenager and then was able to enjoy him. Not that I'm not going to enjoy him as a teenager, but I was able to enjoy what I was doing by just framing it a little differently. Absolutely. J just before hopping on here, my husband and I were doing some daily gratitudes, which is something that we do not every day by any means, but we had a few minutes and we did that. And one of his gratitudes, he's currently rotating on vascular surgery. And he said, I am so grateful for my health because my patients are so, so, so sick. And so just even being able to step outside, like it's a very busy, hectic rotation. He was out of the house at 5 15 this morning and didn't come home until about 7.30. And to be able to hold that good of like, wow, I have my health, I have my vitality, and really hold that in the context of everything he's doing, I think is it's so important to maintain that perspective. A lot that I've learned from you both. Another thing that, that you bring up in the book that I think we can flip the script on is asking for help right? Like one thing that you all discuss is that when you ask for help, the assumption is that you're burdening someone with your problems. And, you know, we're, we're physicians, maybe humans in general, reluctant to do that, right? We don't want to burden other people. With, although, yes, I do know plenty of people who have no problem just <laughs> complaining ad nauseum. But this is not that. This is just, you know, sharing. And so why is that an incorrect, why is that burden an incorrect assumption? I mean, if our listeners can just like maybe close their eyes or if you're driving, don't close your eyes, but just imagine the last time that someone asked you for help and how that felt for you. Perhaps you felt like you had some kind of special skill set that you were able to contribute to that other person, or you had some wisdom or knowledge to pass down, or you felt really needed and that you had value to share. And I think when we're asking for help, we totally undervalue the ability to give someone the opportunity to help us. And lots of 
my psychiatrist says this all the time. And I think it came from Anna Freud or lots of psychologists in the past, but there's no such thing as true, pure altruism because giving to others feels good for us. And tons of studies on positive intervention show that people who spend time doing something for themselves and then compare that to time doing something for others feel much better, more psychological benefit when they do something for others. Even if the thing for themselves is like getting a massage or getting a manicure, the self-indulgent behaviors don't feel as psychologically rewarding to us than giving to someone else. So there is a caveat to this. You don't want to ask someone for help with something that they have absolutely no expertise or experience in, right? We want to be very deliberate in who and when we ask for help such that we are aligning the other person's strengths and interests and availability with the thing that we need help with. And, and that's like one of the best ways to give someone else the gift of giving. Well, then what's the difference between that and just where does it cross the line to burdening, right? Because we've all been on the receiving end of that when someone just like an endless stream of problems and negativity and depression, and they end up just bringing you down, right? So how do we know when it's the right amount? Well, emotions are contagious. And it is if it's getting to a point where the it's not really an ask, but rather just an emotional dump, you know, you want to make sure that the person who you're asking, or who is receiving that emotional dump is emotionally equipped themselves and has the bandwidth to both tolerate that and to actually help you and not just get down into that hole with you. And I think this, you know, this is just a plug for mental health resources in general, that there are a lot of things that I share with my therapist that I may or may not share with friends, coworkers, colleagues. And although I am pretty, pretty much an open book, but I like my emotions to be a little bit pre-processed before I just dump them on people around, <laughs> around me. I think we have different friends for different purposes, right? Like you're not going to go to the same person to necessarily like go out for a fun night out that you will to like talk about your deepest, darkest emotions that you will to make you laugh when things are hard. One of the practices in our book is about really understanding who's in your network. We call it who's in your boat. Like who are your crew members in this journey of life and who can we rely on for different things and being really deliberate about um, who we can depend on for what in our lives. Excellent segue, the boat, because you've got that whole thought exercise on the boat. So can you flesh out the boat a little more for us? Absolutely. So this, it really comes from Scott's incredible work in Transcend that we extended into this book. And it's really the basis of our whole book. So all of the chapters go through a different portion of the boat. Listeners have probably heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So Abraham Maslow, humanistic psychologist, he interestingly was the first person to coin the term positive psychology way back when. In some of his writings, he essentially said, we need a pot, we need to move toward a more positive psychology. And then Marty Seligman took the reins in the 1990s. But anyway, I digress. So Maslow's pyramid is all, er, the hierarchy of needs is often depicted in a pyramid. And people can probably imagine it. It's, you know, self-actualization at the top and it's like safety and security and it moves up. And Maslow never actually depicted a pyramid that was actually some textbook designer who interpreted his ideas and depicted them in this way. But he was actually pretty clear. Yeah, people don't know this. Of course, Scott knows this because he went through Maslow's writings and talked to his family members and got like really obsessed with Maslow for a few years in 2015. 
So <laughs> Maslow is very clear that needs are not something that ascend. You, you reach one level and then you've unlocked the next level of life, never to return to that baseline, right? So Scott really reimagined the pyramid to be a more dynamic construct, which is the sailboat. And the idea is that we have the base of our sail. Oh, sorry, excuse me. We have the base of our boat. And the base of our boat are really our security needs or the security system that we call. And that's comprised of three fundamental human needs, which are safety, connection. We talked about that as such an important human need. And a basic sense of self-esteem, which we define as self-worth a basic sense of worthiness and mastery, you know, being good at least a few things in this life. The idea with that security system is that if we're so preoccupied with filling those needs, we're not going to be able to, we're going to be sinking. We're not going to be able to move forward, let alone really, we, we're treading water. We're staying in place, really focused on plugging up those, those holes. Once we have that system generally intact, we can enter what is called the growth system, which is defined, which is really the sail of the sailboat. So if you think this is what propels us to moving forward in the world. So this, these three needs are exploration in the world, and that's cognitive, social exploration, literal exploration, and new things, pushing our comfort zones, love as a distinct need from connection, but really more about a loving orientation to the world connecting with people we don't even necessarily have to like them very much, but having a loving orientation to the world, and then a, a sense of purpose and direction in one's life. And the idea is once we have this sailboat that is integrated and we're constantly working on, you know, we can repair all of these systems and work work on many needs at the same time. When once the sailboat is integrated, that's when we have transcendence which is really like living in harmony. The good of us, the good of our, us as individuals is synergistic with the good of the world around us. And I would imagine there will be holes in the sailboat. There's You're constantly having to maintain said sailboat. You don't just like reach this transcendence and then you're just continuously transcendent. Exactly. We are just we are not just constantly solo circumnavigating the world. We are constantly maintaining who's in our crew and who's on that boat with us. And ha exactly, we are maintaining the planks in the bottom of the boat and reestablishing our sense of self-esteem and security and, you know, plugging up that sail, which sometimes we're going to change it out and sometimes we're going to patch it up here and there. So it's not a static construct. The idea is that this is constant, a constant evolution and there's no... You know, we're not sailing to any particular destination. We're not suggesting that there's one ideal version of humanity that we are working toward, but really that everyone is on their own unique journey and in their own unique sailboat. And we're all kind of sailing these waters together. I love that the analogy and how, you know, beautifully it all really fits together. So one of the things that you, one of your favorite things, one of, one of Scott's favorite things is Maslow. So he takes a deep dive into Maslow. <laughs> You take a deep dive into the vagus nerve. Bit of a segue. I'm not sure if that segue was a little little bumpy, <laughs> but we'll take it. Maslow and Vegas and favorite <laughs> things. <laughs> well, I mean, there was also uh, yeah. the dad joke, does everything that happens in the Vegas stay in the Vegas, right? <laughs> Thank you for the pity laugh. So, you know, do you know I didn't pick that up as a dad joke when you sent that over? I just was like... No, you know, it affects the whole body. 
<laughs> Thank you for, wow, I'm really, I read it. You sent these over when I was working on an ED shift and I was like eight hours into a 12 hour shift. So I really appreciate clarifying. <laughs> it was terrible. So I do appreciate that laugh. So tell us why the obsession with the Vegas so the vagus nerve, so there will be doctors listening to this, of course. So I, I really have to say that my passion for the vagus came from my anatomy professor, Dr. Lightman, who was also obsessed with the vagus. And it was his favorite nerve. He would talk about how it's the wandering nerve. And he spoke about this very passionately. And, you know, when you're a first year medical student and someone's passionate about what they're teaching, it, it's, it can be very infectious. And I remember dissecting, we could see the vagus nerve and becomes the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which is your territory in the body. So deep admiration for this nerve. But what's so cool about it, it's the longest cranial nerve in the body of our 12 cranial nerves. And it extends all the way from the brainstem down to the colon. So this expands huge territory in the body. And the vagus is responsible for essentially mediating our state and our autonomic nervous system between that sympathetic fight or flight and the vagus nerve activates the parasympathetic nervous system to put us in what Stephen Porges of the polyvagal theory calls the social engagement system. So you got folks may have heard this as the rest and digest system, but it's really the state where our bodies are at relative ease. We're not having all of the blood shunted to our heart and lungs and big muscles. And we're also not in like the freeze state where our all of our cognition is turned down and essentially we're hiding, hibernating um, in the presence of such significant threats that fighting and flighting is fighting or, or going into flight is not even an option. So I love this because we can actually control both internally through practices, meditation, deep breathing. And so I guess it is internal, but I kind of see this as like internal external because we can do a carotid rub. We can massage the inner ear where the vagus innervates. We can laugh. We can sing. We can do these maneuvers, cold water on the face that actually engage our vagus nerve and um, enhance our vagal tone so that we can more readily switch between states. It's funny, I had this lecture a while ago that was talking about like acupressure. So, you know, you have those acupressure points in your ear that are supposed to mimic the fetus. And I am not one like I want to do an episode on acupuncture that just goes through the actual science of it to see, you know, what we have on it to see if like sham acupuncture is any different from real. Like, I plan to cover it in a later episode, but it sounds like what you're saying is. Some of those acupressure points that you have in the ear where the ear is supposed to be like the shape of the fetus, you're actually stimulating the vagus nerve. So it's really creating a physiologic response. Full disclosure, I'm not by any means well-versed in acupressure or acupuncture. I have done it before myself, and I have a good friend who's an acupuncturist and swears by the fascia stimulation. And I would presume that what you're talking about is correct, that if we're in the ear, yes, the vagus nerve runs through, there is a branch of it that I believe I understand, you know, I don't know that I've seen it with my eyes before, but that goes in the ear. But you know, like that we learn in medical school, and maybe it's happened to someone that like, you're wearing a necktie, and you turn your head too fast in the car when you're backing down the driveway, and you pass out, right? So that's the tie is compressing the carotid, 
where you have your baroreceptors, also the vagus runs through there. And if you both turn and have the tightening on both sides, that's why you say you never do a carotid rub bilaterally because you can pass out because you're sending all of that parasympathetic tone through the body and lowering blood pressure, lowering heart rate, and you can pass out at the wheel. So presumably, I imagine there is some truth to that, although I cannot, I'm not an expert, so I don't know. Again, we're not, I'm not pushing for acupuncture. I'm not. And I think the way this is a little critique of the way that it's researched is Harriet Hall, who's a, you know, a, a skeptic physician. Unfortunately, she passed away a couple of years ago. I think she referred to it as tooth fairy science, where you can study the economics of the tooth fairy and how much money does the, does, does the tooth fairy bring in this neighborhood for which tooth? And you can really, but if your assumption about how it's working is incorrect, then, you know, the science kind of falls apart. But if you start Start with, well, the vagus nerve connects here. And if you can, you know, you start with the science and then you research from there, then you, you can draw more, more legitimate conclusions. Now, we're not here to refute acupuncture. That will be, or what, you know, its own episode going a little astray. And actually, we're kind of running short on time. So there's one more thing that I really, really wanted to talk to you today about to make sure that the audience gets it. And that is the active constructive response. And so you, one of the things that you had talked about that we've talked about is the strength of the importance of social connections. And this is something that I think we can all use as tools to further strengthen our social connections because you can become everybody's hype person and everybody loves, everybody's got that friend and you can become that friend, become everybody's hype, pers hype person by using the active constructive response. So what is that? So this is my favorite positive intervention. So I was so glad to see that you pulled this out. So it's so interesting because I think as humans, what is intuitive for us is that it's really important to have people in our lives when things are going wrong, right? Like we need that support, you know, someone to console us when things are sad. But what the re what's really interesting in the research is that Shelly Gable and her colleagues found that relationship quality is really better predicted by having people there for us when things are going right. And the way we show up for people in times of good, when they have good news to share with us, really matters. So maybe an example of this, Brad, do you have some good news that you want to share with me? Wow. It really shouldn't be that hard to think of good news. <laughs> it could be anything. Like, I put my kid to sleep last night. So we're going to be talking about this in a future episode, but my wife and I have an investment property and we're going to be celebrating some of Thanksgiving there with some extended family and we're excited to show it to everybody. So this is what not to do. I should have practiced that. Oh, that's really great, Brad. That's awesome. I'm in the middle of a really busy season. It's podcast recording. I was having this good conversation. You kind of just distracted me. I. It sounds like you have some good news on the pike. Like, Can we talk about this in like 10, 15 minutes when I'm done? Wow. You just deflated my balloon there. Yeah, totally. Totally. And this is sadly the passive constructive where I'm like, I'm not totally throwing you under the bus. I'm not saying like, well, do the other two styles in a second, but I'm just not present there with you. I'm distracted. I am busy. And this is really lethal to relationships. And as doctors, we probably do this all the time when our kids come home from school and they're like, daddy, daddy, like, let me tell you about my day. And you're like, I'm dealing with a patient situation. Like, let me talk to you at dinner. Like, we'll talk later. And it can be really deleterious, even though we think we're like doing the right thing by being there for our patient in that moment or whatever it is we're doing. 
Okay. All right. Give me that news. You're going to give it to me three more times. The last time will be the good, active, constructive response. And I'll demonstrate the other response styles that people fall into in the meanwhile. So my wife and I bought this investment property in upstate New York, and we're going to be having the whole family there for Thanksgiving to you know, show them all what we've done. Oh my God, Bradley. Let me tell you, my in-laws just sold their investment property and they're putting it in a trust for our family. And it's so exciting because now we get to flip it over and like find a new property altogether. So I totally know what you're talking about. It's so cool and such a luxury to have this, right? Like we're so lucky. Oh, the one upper. I know so many people <laughs> that do that. They're looking to relate and just, but just looking to elevate themselves too. Totally, totally. Okay, let's do the third bad one that we often fall into. All right, one more time. Okay, so we bought this investment property and we're excited to show it to our family over the holidays. Oh God, so what are the taxes on that place? They're a little high. It's, yeah, it's stretching the budget a little bit. Is it a schlep from Long Island? I bet, you know, going with the kids, they're young, long car rides, you know, sounds like kind of a pain. Yep. Two different kids have thrown up on the way up there. Yeah. That's a good point, man. Am I totally deflating? Yeah, you bring up some good points. Totally, totally <laughs> deflating. <laughs> so by bringing up, and of course, this is totally hypothetical and I hope no children have vomited in the making of this podcast. So obviously, usually people do this in a less extreme way when they have good intentions, but they're trying to bring us back down to earth. Like, okay, like what you're saying, like, but I have X, Y, and Z concerns. And my mother, she's the best. She does this to me all the time. I'm like, mom, do you, and now she knows the language for it. I'm like, do you know what response <laughs> style you're using right now? And it like nips it in, right in the bud. So, okay. So Bradley, I'm not even going to make you say the news again, because I'm so excited for you. How did this come about? Where's the property? What's the plan? Who's coming on Thanksgiving? extended family. My parents are going to be there. My wife's parents are going to be there. My brother's family is going to be there. Cousins we haven't seen in oh 10 years. And we're just really excited about it. We're, it's, you know, it's a big, it's a fun property to be at. There's a pond and there's room for lots of people. And we're just, yeah, we're super excited to have it and share it and have a little revenue. God. So you're bringing together like generations of this family. Yes. That's incredible. Oh my God. So, um, that's going to be like an amazing holiday and there's a good kitchen. You'll be cooking. Are you, do you guys do turkey on Thanksgiving? We'll be doing turkey. There will be two turkeys for all the people. Yeah, that's it's going to wow. be all the fixings. We're pretty excited. Incredible. Incredible. That is a lot to be grateful for. Definitely. So that sounds amazing. And that's the active constructive response. It's helping you helping the person sharing the good news relive all the details of it, really asking questions, deepening the sense of connection. Because, you know, outside of this little hypothetical example, when someone shares good news with you, they're typically, you know, choosing you in that particular moment to share their news with, and they're looking for connection, and they're looking for support and validation. And those are all opportunities to really deepen connection and help someone be seen. And that is what predicts our quality of relationships. I think that's amazing. I think, you know, in those other response styles, you can, you know, we've all done it before. You know, we know who the one-upper is. I think that, you know, we've all had friends and colleagues who are one-uppers and hopefully most of us aren't that person. But if you are, maybe it's time to think about it and reflect and realize that's who you are. You know, the last example, the second to last, the last negative you used where, you know, we're trying to protect 
our friends, our family from what could be a mistake. And so we're trying to make sure that they're, you know, not jumping headfirst into something. And so I think to your point, there's a time and a place for that. That can come later. But when they first give you this answer, just run with them. They're running headlong in this direction. Just run with them. They're excited. Share their excitement. And you're right with the kids. Like are we often have priorities, which is not the here and now with them. And they live in the here and now. They, that's where they live. And so we need to join them in the here and now. And whatever we think is more important, we need to stop and think, and is it really more important than whatever they have this immediacy uh, need for sharing? Right. And that might not be there in 10 minutes when you're ready to talk about it. They forget. They forget all (laughs) the time. What was it you were saying? I don't know. I forgot. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. (laughs) So you missed your chance. You missed your window for deepening that connection. So you got to take it. Right. And people don't, you know, that that quote, people don't remember what you said, but they remember how they how you made them feel. And I think that's so true. And by being with someone, it doesn't even matter totally what you're saying. It just matters that you help them capitalize on that positivity. And if you have concerns, if you want to tell them your story, you can just do it later. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. So the book, Choose Growth, I can't recommend it more. It is a workbook because it's dense. It's dense because you guys cover so much ground in one book. Like, I think it's like, it's like a book for a lifetime. Like, there's so many things that you cover in there in so many different directions that are all things that we all need to work on. And it gives us a way to think about it. And, and that's what this podcast is all about is like taking concrete steps towards self improvement. Well, what? can I do? And that's what you give. You give great examples and it's just incredible. So I encourage everybody to go out and get it. Choose growth. Dr. Jordan Feingold, thank you so much for what you do, for what you do for physicians. And thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it. Or comment on a social media post. Or write us a five-star review. Something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you. This is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice. Or financial advice. Or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.